Что, ребята, как дела? Что, тиха украинская ночь, да, как говорил великий украинский писатель Гурка? Все ли у вас хорошо, ребятки? Нравятся ли вам наши байрактары? Welcome to the Ukrainian Provcast, a series of conversations providing Western listeners with the background, context, and history to understand Russia's war in Ukraine. I'm Sam Bach, and with me as always is my co-host Michael Williamson. Joining us again today is Andrew Denieri. Andrew is an assistant director at the Atlantic Council, and you can follow Andrew's work on Twitter at Andrew underscore Denieri. For today's discussion, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the root causes of Russia's war on Ukraine, examining the issue from the perspectives of NATO, Russia, and Ukraine. So in that order, let's start things off with NATO, beginning after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the subsequent eastward expansion of NATO. So to kind of kick things off, let's provide our listeners uh, just with a little bit of a timeline, really, of the 1990s NATO expansion. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get right into it. And of course, a map would certainly be a useful reference for a topic like this, unless you really know your European geography. But in 1991, as most people listening probably know, the Soviet Union collapses, uh, preceded by the fall of the Berlin Wall. So Germany is now unified underneath the NATO umbrella, right? So this is 1990, 1991, roughly. Um, And it's still undecided what direction Russia is going to go. Um, There were hopes that it would go in a more democratic direction um, with this Yeltsin administration, uh, but a lot of countries weren't sure. And because we weren't sure, we decided to keep NATO around because why not? It seems to be a great instrument for the global world order and the end of history, right? Um, But very quickly, Russia shows its true colors uh, with military actions in Moldova, in Chechnya, which attempted to declare its independence from Russia, and uh, in Abkhazia, a breakaway region in the Republic of Georgia. Uh, And it is in part due to these moves by Russia that a wave of former Warsaw Pact countries uh, seek admission into NATO. And so very quickly, by by the end of the 90s, you have Poland and the Czech Republic and Slovakia, uh, and Hungary all joining into NATO. And then that's followed by another wave, right? This is beginning to really frighten the Russians now. You get the entirety of the Bal- Baltic states, right? That being Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Estonia being a 45-minute ferry ride from St. Petersburg, right? A cultural core of Russia. So NATO is really pressing up against them now. And then you get, of course, Romania and Bulgaria. And then there were a couple little add-ons in the 2000s. So you get countries like Croatia and Montenegro and Albania, um, North Macedonia, and today we're even talking about uh, it's either Bosnia-Herzegovina or it's Kosovo. It actually escapes me which right now, um, but both of which the Kremlin has deemed would be a red line. Uh, and obviously with the fresh wave of hostilities, we're now talking about a slim majority of people in Finland and Sweden now preferring NATO membership to non-NATO membership. Uh, so that is the rough timeline. Yeah, so let's before we um, get into that, I think it's important to let our listeners know that at one point in this time period, Russia was a NATO peace partner and was really on the track to potentially joining the alliance. So um, part of this history is we kind of want to, and Mike alluded to it, is kind of explain the degradation of what seemed to be a new chapter in the relationship between the West and Russia. Well, I would would jump in and say um, that one key point, if we're looking especially at the 90s and relations between NATO countries in Russia is the 1997 NATO-Russia Founding Act, in which NATO and Russia basically agreed to a set of principles that they would work together 
um, toward security and prosperity in Europe, broadly defined, but with a a few key, especially today, premises, um, namely respect for territorial integrity of NATO's in nation, uh, nations in NATO, and all nations. Um, so this was agreed upon in 1997, um, and is, is kind of, as we've seen in Georgia and Ukraine, and I think we'll get to later, um, is kind of a key point in the discussion about NATO and Russia. I'd actually like to back it up just a little bit uh, and talk about what the ascension of NATO and the fall of the Soviet Union actually meant and what each side was seeking to gain out of this. Uh, In the United States, we look at this as a victory, right? We won the Cold War, uh, and to the victor go the spoils, somewhat within reason. Um, Russia saw themselves, they were hoping to to retain some sort of co-equal partnership in Europe where they could still have access to their old sphere of influence, but they've simply let the Warsaw Pact go and the Soviet Union's no longer a thing. Um, And that's really what upset them because very quickly they were disillusioned of that idea because all these nations sought protection under the NATO umbrella um, very rapidly. One of the countries that really wanted Russian protection, I shouldn't even say a country at this point in time, but yes, Serbia was one of the big ones. Uh, Serbia at this time being the dominant military power within the Yugoslavian Republic, which was comprised of what you had Serbia, Slovenia, Croatia, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, modern day, like Macedonia, all those Balkan states, right? Um, And without going into the whole very complicated, bloody, messy history of the Yugoslav conflict, uh, the Serbs were kind of attempting to keep the entire republic together and were broadly opposed by the UN and NATO because of some things that the Serbs did at very unfortunate times and uh, some things they did to the uh, Albanians and the uh, Bosnians. So the Russian military offered to send peacekeepers to protect Serbia. Um, they weren't able really to stretch themselves that thin and NATO consequently ended up like bombing Belgrade. Um, and to this day, like the Russians feel a great deal of uh, regret a great deal. I shouldn't say, like, I, when I say Russians, of course, I'm speaking quite generally here, but at least the Russian government remembers this in a very painful light. Like, they were unable to protect their fellow Slavic brethren in this conflict and watched NATO just for the very first time in its history go on an offensive military operation in Europe that involved the use of, like, massive amounts of dumb bombs being dropped onto Belgrade, where a lot of civilians died. Um, so that is a key event to understand. Like, it's easy for us to look at NATO and think of it rightfully as a defensive alliance in nature, right? Article 5 is a purely defensive clause, but it wasn't always used purely defensively, and that's not lost on the Russians, and that is where I think some of the moral gray areas begin to creep into this analysis. Michael, do you want to maybe quickly outline what was going on in Serbia? What um, what were some of the things that the Serbs were doing, maybe? Well, Well, the thing that triggered NATO involvement was tantamount to genocide on the part of the Serbs versus the Bosnians. Um, again, the whole conflict, at least, at least from my point of view, it's a lot more gray than what's happening in Ukraine right now. Um, it was, you know, the Yugoslavian the Yugoslavian country was very stable and economically prosperous for, for a post-Soviet state. Uh, and then their president died and it all kind of got thrown into chaos. And it was a battle of who was trying to control who, like the Croatians wanted to maintain their hold on Serb areas and the Serbs wanted to maintain their hold on Bosnian ethnic areas. It was like, there wasn't really a clear good guy or bad guy in my mind until the Serbs started 
genociding uh, Sarajevo and all the Bosnians in that area. I don't know. Is there anything that you want to layer on top of that, Andrew? Well, no, I was just going to like, just to clarify, like, so the one, so the NATO intervened for the one time in its history, really, to try to stop a genocide happening or from, from continuing. Is that correct? Uh, that was the NATO justification for the operation, yes. To, to pull back for a second, though, I think <clears throat> I just want to reiterate on two of the points that Mike hit that is what really kind of began to sour NATO in the post-Soviet Russian eyes, which is, again, this the fact that it was that Yugoslavia was both an offensive action, and again, NATO was construed, initially conceived as a defensive alliance, and then the fact that, um, <clears throat> and this sort of goes to the mythic Russian nationalism that we've touched on before, and we'll get to a little bit again, but Russia was unable to play its role as a protector of the Slavic people in this instance. And, um, you know, whether that's like just a rhetorical clutch used by the uh, Kremlin or not, that that is an idea that does, <clears throat> I mean, it, it is a motivating factor of the war in Ukraine today. So it these two things together really kind of started um, the souring. And I think we should continue down that road. Um, but again, just with letting other listeners know that there was a point in time um, after the fall of the Soviet Union that there was murmurings of Russia joining NATO, which crazy as it sounds today, but it is important to set the historical stage here that after the fall of the Soviet Union, things were not um, predetermined to come back into a route of conflict. Yeah. And just one point on the, the Serb-Russia relationship. It's the Serbian-Russian relationship goes back to the 1800s, where Russians um, helped uh, fight a previous war um, with their Serbian brothers. So I think Serbia, in in a way, is unique in its close relationship with Russia, among other Slavic nations that were less close to Russia and didn't desire quite as close relations with Russia. Yeah. So, um, Mike, unless there's anything else you want to get on on this topic, I want to bring us um, towards kind of two pivotal promises, quote unquote, that were made by NATO, which, again, really helped to contribute to the souring of relationships between Russia um, and NATO again afterwards. So if you want to really quick walk back over that, uh, that idea that Russia at one point was maybe going to become part of NATO, we can actually talk about that briefly. Um yeah, it, yeah, it was like never that. a real. It was never a realistic proposal um, because the reality within NATO is that a unanimous count of NATO members have to vote to let you in, and on top of that, a very large majority of citizens within your own country have to vote to let you in, uh, and so many Russians understandably viewed NATO as like an American puppet treaty alliance, right, um, and had been their existential enemy for for some of them for their entire lifetimes, right? So kind of a big ask to expect a majority of that population to vote yes, and then to expect the Baltics and everyone else to say, yes, let's let Russia in. Uh, and a lot of that same dynamic is why I don't think it was realistic um, until fairly recently to expect Ukraine to follow the same path. There was a lot of people in Ukraine who didn't hold an overwhelmingly positive view of NATO either, or at least a very neutral view. Um, so there was... there. So, so one thing I just like to say is, and that, that's all true. Completely agree with that. But even so, merely making lip service to Russia joining NATO is a huge um, step away from what things are at now. So take it within context, and it's still a regression. Even if the idea of Russian Russia joining NATO was not ever realistic, the fact that it was even talked about at all is a huge improvement of relationships between where things are today. Um, so with that, uh, I think we want to touch on two, like I said, two promises that were made. Um, <clears throat> first one, very briefly, Andrew, do you want us to discuss the 1990 promise uh, that was made actually to the Soviet Union by NATO? 
Yeah, I, I want to address it, if only to dispel some uh, common misconceptions in the West that are kind of built on Kremlin misinformation. Um, so in 1990, um, James Baker, the U.S. Secretary of State, um, met with his counterparts in the Soviet Union. Um, and you'll remember in 1989, a year before, East Germany, the Berlin Wall fell, and um, members of the Warsaw Pact, um, think Poland um, and the Czech Republic, became independent. And But the Soviet Union still existed. And there's disagreement um, about exactly what was said in this meeting. And, but we, what we do know is that um, there was this not one more inch kind of fallacy that James Baker promised um, uh, his counterpart Gorbachev that um, NATO wouldn't move one more inch to the east. Um, and whether that was, it's been misinterpreted that that means in general and that the, the, the alliance went back on one of its promises to Russia. The only problem with that is that um, not one more inch actually refers to not one more inch of the borders of East Germany, right? Um, which was newly independent. The USSR was still a country in 1990 and the countries, um, the constituent republics were just that, constituent republics of the USSR. So it would have been nonsense to even broach the subject of the Baltics joining NATO, Georgia joining NATO, Ukraine joining NATO, because they were still part of the Soviet Union. So the premise that NATO promised or pledged to Russia that NATO wouldn't move east, would not enlarge east, um, doesn't hold because the context was so different. The countries in question were not countries per se. Russia was not a country per se. Um, so that's, that's kind of one key thing we have to clear up when we think about um, kind of the relationship and some of the faults, fault lines in the relationship between NATO and Russia. Absolutely. Uh, Mike, you got anything? Otherwise, I want to move on to the 2008 promise. I, I think he pretty much hit it. The, the thing to bear in mind is that this was a, an unwritten, verbal, sort of weak promise made to the Soviet Union, not Russia, back at a time when the Soviet Union still existed and no one expected it to collapse. Um, and... You know, verbal agreements made from the time when most of your soldiers were not even alive is not a justification for war uh, this far later. Yeah, and we'll get to the verbal agreement part, I think, right now, actually. But um, <clears throat> so the other promise, and this is definitely different of a kind, was made in 2008 between uh, NATO and Russia. And um, so, so there, this this is the much more important of the two. And um, <clears throat> in certainly to the Kremlin, is used as a major justification of the war in Ukraine today. So to let, let's just give a brief overview. So in 2008, it was promised by a NATO representative that, uh, or rather not promised, but this was when the talk of both Georgia and Ukraine joining NATO took place. And the implications of that are really enormous. Um, but before we get into that, is there anything you guys just kind of want to add factually before we talk about the implications? Um, I would add a couple of things factually um, that – so these promises that NATO made to Ukraine and Georgia were just that, promises to Ukraine and Georgia um, that they would one day join the alliance. And this was in lieu of a membership action plan, which is a concrete 
set of steps that countries need to take to formally join the alliance. And so this was an open-ended kind of proposal, a compromise in the alliance, um, and was made with Russia in mind. Um, NATO representatives did not want to antagonize Russia, and so they came to this compromise that one day these countries will join NATO, but we will not lay out the exact steps that they need to take to do that, A, because they're a bit far away, and B, um, they were worried about antagonizing Russia for better or worse. Yeah, so with that said, I'm actually going to push back a little bit on your characterization because I think I think it is important to uh, play devil's advocate and give um, Russia as much as much good faith of their arguments as they can get. So here's a here's kind of my understanding that I want to lay out to you guys, and you can push back afterwards. Um, <clears throat> this was an incredibly imprudent move for a number of reasons. One is that it gave Ukraine and Georgia, and we'll discuss Georgia in just a second, a false sense of security and optimism about joining NATO that in the case of Georgia, you know, ultimately you could argue led to the Russian invasion thereof um, because they, Georgia was kind of getting buck uh, with Russia. He was like, oh, look at us, you know, we're going to join NATO. Like, what are you going to, no, 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 you can't touch us. Um, so that was imprudent on that level. And then on the second part to offer up NATO membership, um, without a concrete way, but putting it in the mind of the Kremlin means that the Krem- that, that Russia now sees this as an imperative to act. And we'll discuss this a little bit more, but ironically, the strength of the NATO alliance that, you know, no country has been invaded or whatever in the NATO alliance um, means that to the Kremlin, arguably, this looks like, oh, if we are going to take any action, we're actually under, a, we're, we're under the gun, we're under a time limit now to do so. Um, and really kind of arguably pushed this, the context to today. So that's, um that's the, contention that I'd like to lay out and now I'd like you guys to kind of push back as much as you'd like to. Well, I'm actually I'm not I'm not really here to push back on that. What's the the split in this kind of conversation is whether we want to talk about the morality and the justifications for action versus the cold concrete realpolitik reasons for why a nation may be taking certain actions. Uh, and in this case, I think if you had to point to one like the point where NATO really screwed up, in my opinion, it would be this point in 2008 where they extended the potentiality of Ukraine and Georgia joining the alliance that Russia had been pretty vocal about viewing as an enemy um, without having actual intentions to do so, right? Like, we said we were going to maybe do it, but we had no roadmap planned. There was nothing concrete. Everyone was thinking that this was going to be a 20, if not 30, 35-year project, right? Uh, Leaving the door wide open for external actors to get mad and do something about it, which they promptly did. Um, and this was not in a world where Russia had not yet acted uh, militarily. This is post the, the the wars in Chechnya, right? Both of them, um, where Russia leveled Grozny to the ground uh, because they couldn't take it by foot. Where where else are we seeing that these days? Um, <laughs> so it's not like we didn't know what kind. I don't know. It's not like we didn't know what kind of beast Russia was willing to be in its own backyard. That said, Chechnya was actually within its own. Uh, de jour borders of the Russian state. Uh, Georgia was not. Uh, Ukraine was not. But the there was another conflict out, like out in Moldova where the Russians directly supported the breakaway Republic of Transnistria. If you don't know what that is, well, it's a good thing the Russians didn't successfully land in Odessa or else you would definitely know what Transnistria is. But it's you know, a heavily militarized uh, country that still flies. I mean, it's like not an internationally recognized country, but they still have the hammer and sickle on their flag, <laughs> actually the only country in the world to still have that emblazoned. So like deeply, deeply Russian. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I, 
I actually, if you want to make the charitable case that NATO brought this war on itself, that really is the point in my eyes where the majority of the value of that argument lies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Andrew, I'm sure I'd, you want to jump in. Yeah, yeah. Just, just a couple of points. Um, I think... I think it's correct to say that NATO's mistake, kind of as you guys have touched on, was not was not in um, promising NATO membership to Ukraine and Georgia, but it was leaving it as open ended as it did. Um, and if we're talking about um, right, the title, I believe, of this episode is "Whose fault is it anyway?" And if we want to talk about um, the fault for you know an invasion of Georgia or in Ukraine um at this point Russia still had all diplomatic channels open to it it was in the OSCE it had the NATO Russia um working group they had um you know they're a member of the UN permanent member of the UN Security Council kind of if they wanted to talk about this and say ooh i don't know i don't know about these guys so what what are you guys up to here all of that was available there was no you know, it's not like they had been shut out from these conversations and, you know, they had, quote unquote, no choice but to go and invade and to provoke a conversation that um, they had every avenue open to them for dialogue on, on both these issues. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. But it is one thing to keep in mind, and I'm sure we'll touch on this some more later, but it is important to a both view things from Russia's perspective with regards to this, like the, the example I'd always bring up is, you know, how would the United States feel if <clears throat> um, M- Mexico or Canada were to uh, join a China-led security pact that included military exercises and all that sort of stuff? That would obviously be unacceptable. And you can argue that, well, there's a difference between a U.S.-led security coalition and a Chinese or Russian-led, which kind of brings us to the second point implicit in this. And these are these are big topics, obviously, but which is that there is, and Mike mentioned it earlier, a sliding scale of, of cynicism versus idealism when it comes to foreign policy. Like on the one hand, yes, absolutely, we would love a country like Ukraine to tilt westward, become capitalistic, you know, lose its corruption, gain rule of law, all this sort of stuff, all this wonderful stuff. But on the other hand, the United States is a military ally with Saudi Arabia, a country that only recently let women drive cars. So when it comes to geopolitics, you have to make idealistic con- uh, concessions sometimes in order to play hard, play with hard nose with reality. So um, I don't know if there's, if there's anything you guys want to say on that point, and I think we can uh, move on more to Russia, but I think it's worth really fleshing out. Yeah, I would just very quickly on the, the, the Mexico, Canada, China um, analogy. Um, if we use, take that scenario and use Russia's logic, then we should bomb Mexico or Canada tomorrow, right? Because because neither Ukraine nor Georgia was anywhere close to joining NATO, joining this military alliance at the time that Russia began its invasion of Georgia in 2008 and its invasion of Ukraine in 2014. So so the, the one thing, and Mike, I want to get you in here, but the one thing, you know, I want to push back on, and I was discussing this, this with Mike earlier, is like, yes, I kind of... I feel like in your comment you're saying like, oh, the United States would not do that because that's obviously an unacceptable action, which I agree that is disproportionate. But to imagine, on the other hand, that the U.S.'s sole response would be diplomatic and not something between diplomatic and uh, kinetic action, you know, like um, the CIA or something like that, I think is also unrealistic. So, well, let me, without, let me, you know, without apologizing for 
can I address an elephant in the room here? Yes. Which would be Cuba. Um, because we, we have seen something like this in the not-too-distant past with Cuba when the Soviets forged a military alliance. Whether it was an overt alliance, I don't know, but they were stationing nuclear weapons on Cuban soil. That seems pretty much like mm-hmm, an alliance mm-hmm. to me, right? Uh, and we did attempt to overthrow the Cuban government. We just miscalculated. We were told that the landing at the Bay of Pigs was going to result in a Cuban uprising and Fidel Castro being ousted, which did not happen. Uh, but we had every intention of overthrowing Castro and replacing Cuba with a friendly government, right? Um, now, it is a massive difference in degree, if you're asking me. Um, there were no nuclear weapons in Ukraine. There were no American bases in Ukraine. Uh, the leader of Ukraine was not talking about how much he loved to destroy the Russians, whereas Fidel Castro was probably even more eager to use nuclear weapons than, well, I mean, Khrushchev wasn't eager to use them at all. No one in the Soviet Union was really eager to use them. Um, <laughs> So on the one hand, I think the Cuban Missile Crisis and the armament of Cuba with nuclear weapons posed a much more significant risk, particularly given at the time when the range of nuclear weaponry was not what it is today, and it actually meant something to have nukes stationed that close to Florida as opposed to off in the Ural Mountains, right? Nowadays, it doesn't really matter, uh, but back then it was a serious threat. Uh, so we do have a precedent somewhat for this, but again, even with Cuba, that was a much more serious threat with a, with an actor that was much more serious about cooperating with the Soviet Union. Um, re- like, just, just remember, like, Ukraine was very far off from attaining any sort of membership in NATO. They haven't even made it into the European Union yet. Uh, no foreign military bases on its soil. Now, with that said, I do want to add the caveat here that the reason... If you're asking me, the reason this war is happening right now the way that it is, it's because Putin sees his own station, his own power, as degrading, while the security and strength of Ukraine and the Western-led alliance is, at the very least, staying constant, if not growing. So every year that he waits, he is in a worse position to take the sort of action that he's taking now, Uh, whether that's for his own security or whether that's because he has always dreamed of restoring the Soviet Union to some extent— I'm not here to play the Putin whisperer, but that is something to keep in mind. He's acting now because he views the costs of inaction to be greater than the costs of action. Right. So that's an excellent lead in to kind of talk about Russia's motivation and all this. But before we do, Andrew, if you want to get um, in a last word on this topic, then we can go ahead and move on. No, I I actually agree with Michael that um, Putin is invading because his own standing is diminishing. It's not because of NATO. It's because Putin's becoming less powerful. Actually, can I add one more thing on, onto that? <laughs> Sorry. I, don't, yeah. I, know I just got yeah, done talking yeah. a little much. Um, I know we, the Russians like to say, we had to do this because NATO was going to attack. I mean, that's a very common line that you hear when you listen to people on the street in Russia. I've listened to a lot of interviews. Um, they think that some sort of an attack from Ukraine or NATO is inevitable. Um, on the contrary, I think the reason this is happening now is precisely because they thought correctly that the West was not going to intervene at all. Again, this is an event that they very much see in time. Their, their position will be worse later down the line. And so it's easy for us to be like, well, Ukraine wasn't in NATO. Well, the Russians think that eventually Putin has outright said, I believe Kiev will be hostile in perpetuity. And eventually, like, they won't do it tomorrow. They won't do it next year. But one time they will. And we will be powerless to stop them. Um, but again, the reason this is happening now is precisely because Putin believed he could get away with it without such a strong unified response from the West. Right. But in that sense, it's still about Ukraine rather than NATO, right? This is Putin worrying about his imperial sphere of influence rather than an encroaching. I know, right? 
In a lot of ways, it's like, I, this is, I almost feel like this is the wrong question to be asking. Like, whose fault is it Russia or NATO? And really, the centrality of this conflict is Ukraine vis-a-vis Russia. It's not really, I mean, there is a NATO and greater superpower power element at play here. But this is more, I think, about the relationship between Ukraine being this closely tied, you know, heartland of the Kievan Rus and everything to Russia than it is about Russia opposing the United States. So to be fair, I just thought the title was a catchy one. But um, it is a great title. But it is. But it is a great title. title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we don't have to, we don't have to let a title. We we can be a little disingenuous in our advertising, I guess we'll say. Um, so <laughs> uh, that said, I want to piggyback off of a point that Mike made, which is that these things happen in time. And I I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I, I want to hammer it home here that. It is ironically the strength of the NATO alliance that in some respect led to this war because these things happen in time. And once Ukraine did ascend to NATO, there would be no opportunity for Russia to achieve what's so obviously its goal, which is maintaining its sphere of influence outside of its border, what it views as its classical either Soviet or uh, pre-Soviet territorial claims. Yeah, I mean, I would kind of disagree on the point of fact there that NATO was a strong alliance before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, Troop levels were at historic lows. Macron had called NATO brain-dead just years before and had been courting Russia. And um, where was I? Yeah, and and Trump had hollowed out the NATO alliance um, or had sought to do so. And Ukraine wasn't going to join NATO in any case with the war in Donbass still going on. That was, yeah. I want to push back on one point, which is like the, oh, NATO wasn't strong before the invasion. And I think that's actually demonstrably false by virtue of how strong it is post the invasion. Like you can say, oh, such and such looks weak, but it's revealed strength. That's the only important thing. Like there's this very famous Oxford Union debate that took place right on the eve of World War I, where it was resolved, like, you know, how these debates go, like resolved, you know, no man should fight for his country. Um, and, you know, these were a bunch of well-educated British elites who, like, all, all, who came to the conclusion, yes, no, that's a, that's a very ridiculous proposition. Nobody, sh- nobody should go off and fight, for, fight in a war for their country. And then, like, I think it was, like, two years later, almost every single person in that room was in the trenches in World War I. So it's a very different thing to characterize um, anything in, in a state of inaction versus when, when the resolve is actually tested. Well, but that's exactly, that's exactly my point, is everybody thought... NATO was weak. Putin didn't have some secret sauce knowing that uh, NATO was actually quite strong or he wouldn't have. I don't think he would have gone as far as he did. I think he, Okay. That, that, yeah. that's kind of why the invasion was as big as we thought it was, is he didn't think the response would be um, quite as robust as we've seen. Okay. I, yeah, I, I'll, I'll agree with that for sure. Actually, I, I think I just misunderstood you. Mike, you wanted to jump in. Um, I mean, well, well, part of, part of my issue with the whole, I mean, it, Again, it's easy for us to look at NATO from our comfort in the West and say, well, it was at a weak point and there was, there was um, you know, discord within the union, right? Uh, but in reality, I mean, NATO, this is really all just about the ebbs and flows of democratic whims. If we had a different president other than Trump, maybe we'd be saying a very different thing about NATO. Uh, and really what Trump was trying to do was get other NATO partners to actually spend. Um, now, I mean, he made some noises about potentially leaving if they wouldn't. Um, again, I, I don't want to play the Trump whisper any more than I want to play the Putin whisper. Uh, but it's, and, and to I think, be fair, there was the comment about like, you know, nobody wants to go die for, what was it? Um, Yugoslavia? What was it? He, he made one comment about like, nobody wants to go fight for, uh, God, what was it? Some Baltic country. I think it was a Baltic Estonia, country. Estonia, probably. Um, very, very, 
Estonia, probably yeah, Estonia. Probably Estonia. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. doesn't really matter. Like, yeah. again, I think the point is we're expecting a little bit too much from the Russians who, you know, at least some of their political class view us as a threat to see things our way. Um, whether or not we looked weak at one point does not mean that they assume that we always will be. And maybe that's just the perfect time to act, you know, because they, they don't know what the future is going to be, just like we didn't know what Russia was going to do post-1991. That's the entire reason that NATO st st stood around, right? And we could have gotten rid of NATO in the early 90s, and we didn't because nobody knew what Russia was going to become, what it was going to do, and whether its character had truly changed. Turns out that it didn't. Um, but again, again, I think it's just expecting too much clairvoyance on the part of the Russians, if you can even call it that, because we didn't know where NATO was going to go. Um, so, like, I'm just trying to be as charitable as I can. I, I, I do think that that's not the best line of reasoning to expect the Russians to hold back, just to say that, oh, Macron wasn't spending and the Germans weren't spending and Trump wanted to hollow us out. Like, again, Russians don't necessarily see it that way. Yeah. No, f fair. And I think... Um you know, as we kind of move down the other list of Russian motivations, I do want to throw a mid-episode disclaimer in, uh, you know, which is, let, let's not forget that this was a Russian-initiated war, so we can do all the psychoanalyzing and getting inside folks' heads that we want, but at the end of the day, um, <clears throat> you know, one power decided it was in their best interest to go ahead and invade another country, so um, <laughs> just, just, just let's, let's bring up mind. Let's bring up some other important points here, okay? Um, part yeah, of the reason that I wanted to it. take this topic on in the first place was because there's been a lot of rumblings from chattering classes on TV about we may have provoked this, you know, like the John Mearsheimer argument of Ukraine is the West's fault, it's NATO's fault that we poked the Russian bear in the eye. Um, NATO was not encroaching in Kazakhstan recently when Russian troops moved in and helped suppress the uh, protests against the president. NATO was not moving into Belarus when Russian troops moved in and quelled protests against the president. NATO troops were not moving into Moldova. NATO troops were not moving into Chechnya, right? Like, the Russians have a long-standing pattern of attempting to rule the smaller, what they wish would be constituent republics within sort of their sphere, right? Um, they kind of, and that's kind of the rule of geopolitics. Like, they expect that they should be able to control those smaller, weaker countries on their borders, whether or not there's a NATO involvement there. Um, and again, what prompted this really was not necessarily NATO, but it was Ukraine attempting to join the European Union and then kicking out Yanukovych when he failed up to uphold his mandate in office, which, um, again, I don't want to like... Of which we discussed last time with Andrew on episode. Yeah, don't want to like rehash so the whole history of Maidan right now, but... Yes. Um, <clears throat> spe speaking of, Andrew, anything you want to jump in on any of this? Yeah, I, I think... I think Michael's right that this is another extreme example of Kremlin imperialism and aggression abroad. Um, and to really just put the whole, this is all NATO's fault. NATO provoked Russia argument uh, to rest. And I'm just, I just want to run through kind of the chronology in the immediate lead up to this, because if you wanted to, um, prevent NATO enlargement or NATO expansion, this is exactly the opposite of what you would do. So, and, and I would argue that this is all about Putin trying to subjugate Ukraine and very little about um, the, the borders of NATO enlargement. So um, if you'll allow me, I'll briefly go back to this summer um, in the wake of summer of 2021, um, in the wake of a 
massive troop buildup around Ukraine in the spring of 2021. Putin pulls his forces back, but then in the summer writes a really incredibly long ahistorical essay um, about Ukraine, saying that they're one people with Russians. Um, and it's it's very jingoistic and sets minds erasing that um, you know Putin has sights on Ukraine. Then in December and in the winter of 2021-2022, the Kremlin sends these nonsense treaties, proposed treaties to NATO um, that uh, we won't invade or, you know, we can settle this. We'll pull back our our new buildup if Ukraine um, doesn't join NATO, if NATO basically gives Russia a sphere of influence and basically withdraws uh, or draws down troops to close to zero um, in countries bordering Russia, right? Never, not a good faith negotiation. Or, or um, excuse me, like not even countries bordering Russia, but any country that had previously been part of the yes. Soviet Union, right? Pretty overtly yes. written right there. Take your troops out of what is rightfully ours so that we can then influence it was the, was the offer that they that, were making. That's a, that's an important intervention. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, and then... Right as it looks more and more likely that war is coming, this buildup continues. Um, Russia goes to the there's the NATO Russia Council and Russia um, a special meeting of the OSCE, and Russia negotiates completely in bad faith and reiterates their treaties. Um, then, when Putin gives his justification for his quote unquote special military operation in Ukraine, he doesn't say, "Oh, this is to push back NATO." He says, "This is to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine." Um, of which we did a topic about last episode, so go ahead and check that out if you're interested in the, <laughs> the within plugs. Ukraine. That's yes, perfect. Like shameless self-promotion. It's, have to get it yeah, in. Have to get it gotta in. Get it you in. can hate me, but it's what I have to do. <laughs> right, and then uh, Russia is so brutal. Their tactics, so uh, the, the scale is so incredible um, that Finland and Sweden and other non-aligned countries are like, hmm, I kind of want to join NATO now. Um, and you kind of get, like we just talked about, NATO coalesces around Brussels, really, and says, we need to do something about this. This is an existential threat to Europe and our alliance. You get more bad faith negotiations between Ukraine and Russia when Ukraine says, actually, we'll do non-aligned if you guys just fuck off from our borders. If you guys just get out of Ukraine, we'll do NATO non-aligned. And the Kremlin responds by sending their culture minister to negotiate this. Not a foreign affairs official or someone high up in the Kremlin. And it's just blatantly clear that none of this, none of the diplomatic angles about NATO are taken seriously by Putin or by um, major officials in the Kremlin. And so if you wanted to negotiate with NATO, you wouldn't this is not the track you would take, essentially. So I, I think it's it's yeah. looking at what Russians and, and um, the Kremlin has said and done really kind of puts a spear through the argument that it, this is NATO's fault. Sorry for the, the long-winded kind of explanation there. <clears throat> I think that's very important to provide the context, but I want to uh, kind of hit on a couple of points that you made yeah. and reiterate just because I think they're so important. Um, one, and you touched on this kind of at the beginning, which is the fact that this invasion has really backfired in terms of public opinion and perception and everything like that. Um, you know, I think you said a little while ago that, or maybe it was Mike, um, regardless, that 
it was not necessarily a given, even based on the internal dynamics of Ukraine, that Ukraine would be joining NATO. This was not necessarily popular sentiment. It was kind of a 50-50 split. But really, post-invasion, obviously, public opinion has been galvanized against uh, Russia and towards the West. So, you know, total total failure right there. And the second thing um, is the comment about the that NATO needs to regress back to its uh, Soviet lines of uh, countries joining it and everything like that. And you know, I, I I talked a lot about oh well, what if you know Mexico or Canada or you know Mike said Cuba obviously uh, were to side with Russia or China or whatever, but it's really important to remember that these countries that joined in the fall of the Soviet Union did so willingly and very enthusiastically, and the world that was promised to them uh, by NATO, you know. Capitalism, free markets, trade, uh, growing human development standards, all that sort of stuff, that was a very attractive proposition. And what a post-Soviet Russia was offering was simply not. And I think, you know, that's really been borne out in the years since that uh, <clears throat> you can take the Soviet out of Russia, but you can't take the expansionism out of it. I like that. It's a good way to put it. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. <laughs> what, uh, one little I, cap. Can a, a quick... Please, please. Sorry, Michael. Yeah, go quick. Yeah. Um, just a quick bow on... To add some numbers to uh, Ukraine and NATO and the popular support in Ukraine for NATO, um, right? 2012, Yanukovych is in charge, um, pro-Russian president in Ukraine. Uh, support in Ukraine for NATO is at 28%. In the spring of 2014, after um, Putin supports his proxies and invades uh, Donbass and takes Crimea, support jumps to 55%. After three years of war, um, support in Ukraine for NATO jumps to 68%. And now in April 2022, after a full-scale invasion, support in Ukraine for NATO is 91% of the population. Here, here's a neat little part, partisan anecdote that I want to layer on. From There have been a lot... So, so the, uh, the Russian looting of Ukrainian cities has been pretty well publicized at this point. Partially because there's no real system of accountability in Russian courts. I don't think you're going to get court-martialed for even anything up to killing a civilian randomly on the streets at this point. They've actually been encouraged to do so. Partic- not, like, not like that's happened. Oh, no. I mean, they're, they're clearly trying to get ahead of a potential insurgency by neutralizing the military-age males. If, if you have a Ukrainian tattoo on yourself, like you're done. If you have anything suspicious on your phone, you're done. If you know how to fly a plane, you're probably done. Um, anyway, not to get too partisan here. Um, I, I just... It's. I know I've been spending a lot of time in this episode trying to make the charitable case for we can't expect the Russians to see things the same way that we can. But when you think about this rationally, Russia has nuclear weapons. Nobody was talking about an offensive action against Russia. No one even in our most hawkish fantasies ever suggested that we go after Putin directly. We've never gone after North Korea directly which we'd have a much easier well, time I mean, of doing you know, versus Russia. I, th- I think our president just made noise about going after Putin directly. So, Well, I mean, yeah, post all that. I mean, okay, if you want to <laughs> yes, play, yes. if you want to give way to his gaffes, right, okay, so. Um, but yeah, like, I, 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 just, I just feel like this entire thing is so much more about a strong NATO potentially foiling his imperialistic ambitions, Putin's, uh, closing the lid on any possibility of the Russians reestablishing their imperial glory. Uh, so much more about that than it is about any existential threat to our regime, unless unless he views democracy and a successful democratic, like, ex-Slavic brother state on his border. Like, that might actually be a thing. 
Uh, but there was never going to be like the, 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 these worries about NATO being some offensively led coalition versus Moscow, I think is just preposterous. Um, no matter what the Kremlin says, I have a very difficult time thinking that they sincerely believe that. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's good to voice that, obviously, but I, the only thing I'd push back on is that I think it's also worthwhile to give the counter-argument as much weight as you can so it helps our listeners understand things from the Kremlin's perspective, because th- that's a valuable thing to do. Whether or not you agree with it, um, it really helps put you in the mindset of the decisions that led up to this war, is the way I'd put it. Um, so with that, unless anything, unless anyone else has any points that we need to hit on with Russia, I think it's uh, I think we should cover a few points on Ukraine and then wrap this up. Oh no, no, I, I was I was going to say I I think that we're gearing up here for a part two that centers more around the events specifically within Ukraine because Russia puts a lot of blame on Ukraine. Like when they when you look at the justifications that Russia throws out, there's I mean there's a lot there. They say Ukraine is run by Nazis. Ukraine has been suppressing Russian speakers. Also, NATO's out to get us. Uh, If we don't act now, it's inevitable. They will come for us. So it it ranges from we're going to be attacked to the Ukrainians are doing unjust things versus Russian populations to they've gone crazy and Ukrainian identity is impossible to disentangle from Nazi ideology and hyper-nationalist ideology. Um, And I think that in and of itself would actually be worth a, a, a twofer on this topic. Um, and is probably worth saving. I'm going to take moderator's prerogative then to uh, wrap things up right here because um, I really agree with that. I think that would be an interesting uh, thing for us to come back on. And like George Costanza, we're going to end on a high note here. Uh, so, so with that, uh, I wanted to thank all of our listeners for tuning into the third episode of the Ukrainian Provcast and say thank you again to Andrew for joining us once again. Really appreciate it. Um, you, again, you can follow Andrew's work on Twitter at uh, Andrew underscore Denary. And uh, Mike and I will be back with you for another episode, too. And in the meantime, keep up the fight. The Ukrainian Provcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Audio production by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach.